BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Good morning. This is the California Report. I'm Madi Bolaños in San Francisco. Monkeypox cases have tripled in California over the past month. The virus has disproportionately impacted the LGBTQ community and vaccine supply remains limited. Most vaccines have been sent to San Francisco and L.A., where case numbers are highest. And as CalMatters' Kristen Wong reports, other communities across the state say they feel forgotten. It's hard to get the monkeypox vaccine no matter where you live in California. In San Francisco, honestly, it's a little bit like the Hunger Games, accessing vaccination. That's State Senator Scott Wiener at a special hearing on monkeypox last week. But San Francisco, the district Wiener represents, still has more vaccines per capita than any other county in the state, nearly 30 times more than San Joaquin County in the Central Valley. And LGBTQ folks in the Central Valley are struggling for more than just shots. We don't have the institutional support like having Pride Centers in every county. Dan Ariola is a city council member from Tracy in San Joaquin County. So oftentimes it's really hard to educate the members of our community about a particular health needs or to distribute resources to them or simply to advocate on their behalf. Ariola recently contracted monkeypox and says it took days to find treatment for himself and a vaccine for his partner. He hopes the state will begin to factor in these gaps in support when doling out doses. At the special hearing last week, state health officials said they will reevaluate how vaccines are distributed as supplies from the federal government increase. For the California Report, I'm Kristen Wong in Sacramento. L.A. County will get far fewer monkeypox vaccine doses than it expected. KPCC senior health reporter Jackie Fortier has more. L.A. County's monkeypox vaccine shipment is being slashed to just 40 percent of the doses public health officials requested from the federal government. L.A. County was supposed to receive enough for 70,000 doses of the Genios vaccine. Instead, the county will receive enough for just 28,000 doses. The shift from vials to doses caught public health departments across the country by surprise. Last week, the FDA authorized dividing the vaccine into fifths to expand the available supply. But local public health officials weren't told until Tuesday that vaccine shipments would be cut. 
Eligibility in L.A. County remains restricted to certain high-risk groups of men who have sex with men and transgender people. There are more than 990 monkeypox cases in L.A. County. For The California Report, I'm Jackie Fortier in Los Angeles. Despite the smaller-than-anticipated allocation of monkeypox vaccine doses, health officials in L.A. County say they will begin offering second doses to those who are eligible for it. The second dose will be available to people who received their first dose at least 28 days ago. The shot will be available through either a personal health care provider or the county's registration system. The Department of Public Health says it's received assurance from the Biden administration that additional doses will be made available in the coming weeks. The Port of Oakland says a protest by truck drivers that shut it down for several days in July had a significant impact on its business. KQED's Nina Thorson reports. The port says the trucker's action was the major factor in a 28 percent decline in its total loaded container volume in July compared to a year ago. Port operations are recovering from the disruption and congestion, but officials say it might take until the end of this month. The protest was over the implementation of AB5, the 2019 law that changes the way contractors and gig workers are classified in California. The law could affect about 70,000 independent truck drivers who might be reclassified as employees. The port has filed a lawsuit to stop the truckers from blocking traffic in the future and got a temporary injunction in the case. For the California Report, I'm Nina Thorson in Oakland. Meanwhile, the Port of Los Angeles just had its best July ever. Port Executive Director Gene Soroka says that's thanks in part to the port's ability to move ships through quickly now. We've managed to reduce the number of ships waiting at anchor from 109 in January to just 13 today. That's an 88 percent improvement and a huge accomplishment all while moving record volume. Soroka says despite recent record volume, he expects August import numbers to be lower. That's because factory orders from China are slowing and U.S. retailers say they have too much inventory. Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. And in other news, a group of dancers at a North Hollywood topless bar have taken the first step towards forming a union. If their bid is successful, they would become the only unionized strippers in the U.S. KCRW's Tara Atrion has the details. 
A majority of the dancers at the Star Garden Topless Dive Bar in North Hollywood have filed a petition with the National Labor Relations Board seeking a union recognition election. If the NLRB signs off and the election goes favorably for the dancers, they would be affiliated with the Actors' Equity Association, a live theater union representing more than 51,000 actors and stage managers. In a statement, Equity's president Kate Schindel says the dancers have reported consistent compensation issues, including quote wage theft, along with health and. Safety risks and violations. Since March, the dancers have been picketing outside a Star Garden to protest alleged unsafe working conditions, including a lack of protection from abusive patrons. These dancers wouldn't be the first strippers to unionize. That title goes to performers at the Lusty Lady in San Francisco, who formed the now defunct Exotic Dancers Union in 1996. For the California Report, I'm Tara Atrion in Los Angeles. And for the first time, workers at a Starbucks in San Francisco have voted to unionize. The store at 18th and Castro Street is the 15th in California to unionize with Workers United. Employees said they felt unsupported by the company, especially during a four-month closure earlier this year due to maintenance issues. Here's James Kreiss, one of the workers leading the union effort. Yeah, the specific things we're really looking for are stuff like workers' protections, livable wages, and we really just want to be able to work shoulder to shoulder with our leaders instead of having this top-to-bottom leadership. Starbucks says that they will respect the unionization process and bargain in good faith. Some state lawmakers are backing the demands of striking mental health workers at Kaiser Permanente. More than 2,000 clinicians are picketing this week in the Bay Area and Fresno. KQED health correspondent Leslie McClurg has more. Clinicians say they walked off the job after a year of failed negotiations. State Senator Scott Weiner authored a current law requiring insurers to cover mental health care. He commended the workers for standing up to Kaiser. There have been major issues at Kaiser. In terms of providing people with timely access to mental health and addiction treatment, and the workers have been advocating for years to have more staffing and compliance with the law, and that hasn't happened. State Senate President Tony Atkins and Assembly Speaker Anthony Rendon agree. Kaiser says it's trying to hire new therapists, but faces a national shortage of mental health experts. For the California Report, I'm Leslie McClurg. More California students are returning to their schools this week as the new academic year begins, but many students won't need to be in class until later in the morning. The California Report's Saul Gonzalez explains. Starting this year, most high schools in California must start classes no earlier than 8:30 a.m. and middle schools no earlier than 8 a.m. That's because of a first-of-its-kind law passed by state legislators back in 2019. It gave school districts three years to develop later classroom start times for students. Why? Well, health experts and the American Academy of Pediatrics say most teenagers are sleep-deprived, with only a small percentage getting eight. Hours of sleep a night. Moving back classroom start times, it's argued, will give teens more rest, which in turn should improve their emotional well-being and academic performance. Dr. Sachin Panda is a sleep expert at San Diego Salk Institute. And we know that when we sleep, our brain actually processes what we have learned in the day and stores them away. They're also going to have better memory and learning, and they are more attentive at school. So. It Puts them into this positive feedback loop. 
Of course, teachers and parents will also have to adjust to the new school schedules, and views are split. San Diego parent Daryl Davis says he supports later start times for students. He spoke to partner station KPBS. If you're rushed, you get to school, you're tired, you don't feel like doing anything, you cra- it's just, no, late starts is the business. This is what we should have been doing a long time ago. I don't know why I think they should have put everybody on banker's hours. But parent Vanessa Gomez says a later school start time will create family scheduling problems. It's going to be a little bit harder for me, to be honest, because I have another kid in elementary and it's going gonna, it's gonna to mess up with their schedule and my work as well. Many rural school districts in the state are exempt from the later classroom start times, partly because of how far students have to travel to get to school. For the California Report, I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. And finally, it's been one year since a family from Afghanistan escaped their war-torn country and landed in the United States. They fled last August, leaving behind their belongings, their careers, and their hopes and dreams. The kindness of strangers on California's central coast helped make their journey to the U.S. possible. From KAZU in Monterey, Doug McKnight reports. Nazir and his wife Samra greet me in their simply furnished apartment, which happens to be attached to a local church. They ask me not to use their last names because they fear for the safety of relatives still in Afghanistan. As their two daughters played nearby, Nazir offered me a platter of food. As per our uh, tradition, we bring uh, green tea. My wife, Samra, uh, she make uh, handmade uh, cookies and some uh, dry fruits uh, also. It's a thoughtful gesture of hospitality, especially given the family has next to nothing. They literally ran for their lives a year ago when the U.S. withdrew from Afghanistan and the Taliban took charge. Nazir says it felt like things changed overnight. At night when I was sleeping, everything was in normal. But uh, when I wake up, there was no government. He was able to obtain the papers he needed to flee. Without money, clothes, or even precious personal belongings, he and his family drove to the airport with just six hours notice. They left their car on the chaotic streets of Kabul. I stopped the car and uh, I closed the doors and I put the key under the tire. First, they flew to Abu Dhabi where they spent nine months in a refugee camp. Then they flew to a U.S. government facility in Virginia. Here's where the neighbors on the Central Coast come in. The U.S. was struggling to find homes for tens of thousands of Afghan refugees. And so they asked people for help. Bob Brunson pitched the idea to friends during their monthly poker night. Yeah, at a poker game. And I said, you know what? I'll do it if you guys want to do it. I mean, I'm I'm not going to do it alone. And the group agreed to sponsor a family. No one really understood what was involved. What followed was a blizzard of phone calls, paperwork, and bureaucracy. Getting the kids in school, getting people medical, uh, getting the folks uh, their Social Security card. But at the end of all that paperwork was Nazir, his wife, and two kids. The group of kind strangers stepped up and quickly began to grow. It just reinforces my belief in the goodness of humanity and the kindness and generosity of people. For Nazir, a moment to give thanks. Uh, At least I'm alive with my family members, my wife, and incoming baby. I'm thankful of God. I'm thankful of the U.S. government. They took me. Since arriving in America, the family has grown. They welcomed their third daughter last month. 
She is the family's first U.S. citizen. Her name, Sadia, is a tribute to luck, God, and the kind strangers who brought them to California. For the California Report, I'm Doug McKnight in Monterey. And that's the California Report for Thursday, August 18th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm your host, Madi Bolaños. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Support for the California Report comes from the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org. Paint Care. Now with 834 drop-off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at paintcare.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute. Coming this fall, the launch of research vessel FALCOR-2, advancing the frontiers of ocean science and exploration, on the web at schmidtocean.org. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.